Hey, Fixing Fundraising fans, it's Tom here. And in this episode, we were joined by Usman Mughal, who has worked in the charity sector since 2010 across trusts, statutory major donor fundraising, uh, and all of that good stuff. He's currently at Action for Children uh, as a senior philanthropy fundraiser. Usman joined us to talk about equity in grant giving and the changes as a result of COVID-19 to what he believes are the big changes in the grant giving landscape. He has worked and volunteered for charities like St John Ambulance, Mencap, British Red Cross, to name just a few. And also you may recognize Usman's wonderful voice because he runs the podcast channel Charity Chat, which is a forum for learning, commentary and contribution to a more robust, transparent and effective UK third sector. Now, Charity Chat is 100% recommended. Go and check that out as well whilst you're doing your Christmas listening. Usman is really, really passionate about supporting the most vulnerable people in the world. And he's recently traveled to Jordan, Syria and France to support refugees through various different projects. Andy and I were really thrilled that Usman was able to join us. And he really did bring some great wisdom as well as a podcast veneer to his uh to his chat he really knows what he's talking about and says it in such an eloquent way with such quiet passion i really hope you enjoy listening to this episode and a big thank you from me and andy for everyone who's tuned in to fixing fundraising throughout what's been a very very challenging year for the sector and for everyone as a whole so Whenever you're listening to this, wherever you are, I hope you're safe and well. I hope you have a restful time off during the Christmas period. And we'll be back in January with a bang with some fantastic more episodes. So enjoy. And as always, happy listening. Hello and welcome again to Fixing Fundraising. I'm Andy King and as ever joined by my wonderful co-host Tom Dufresne. Hello, Andy. How are you? I am alive, and I think that's a pretty good state of affairs right now. Alive and well. We're keeping safe, aren't we? How's your lockdown going? Yeah, it's good. I just moved house, and I have some very nice housemates, which will keep me going, I think. And you? Oh, dreamy. I've just bought a brand new massive screen that I can stare into and do all my Zoom calls on, so feeling pretty happy about that, you know? Nice. Tom Dufresne coming to you soon in HD. Exactly. Um, today, we're delighted to be joined by Usman Magal. Hi, thank you, Tom and Andy, for um, having me on today. We're very, we're very delighted to have you on. Um, what was it that you wanted to fix in fundraising today? So there were two topics that I wanted to cover today. And I believe that they're interrelated, particularly as we look post-COVID. So the first is the importance within trust and foundations fundraising. And I think for many years now, trust and foundations fundraising has been the bedrock of many organisations' fundraising strategies. And I think it's quite clear to say that during COVID-19 and the response to the pandemic, we've seen funders um, of all shapes and sizes come together to distribute millions of pounds to charities across our sector. And I think trust and foundation fundraising will become increasingly important, particularly because income is going to be significantly reduced in other income streams, as you both know, within event fundraising and community fundraising in particular, and therefore the pressure to leverage significant gifts on the trust and foundation size would be even more important. 
And secondly, I want to talk a, a little bit about equity, diversity and inclusion, but through the lens of trust and foundations, which um, possibly hasn't been covered in any detail in the sector at the moment. So grant giving organisations like the National Lottery Community Fund, BBC Children in Need, are taking meaningful and active steps to address the importance of EDI in our sector. Many of the largest grant funders in the UK have also come together to form a DEI coalition, so a diversity, equity and inclusion coalition. And their main aim is to understand how they can distribute funding more inclusively and equitably. And I think the question we need to ask ourselves as organisations in the sector is, are we doing the same? So those are the two topics that I think are of utmost importance and are quite interlinked. Great. Those are those are both pretty meaty um, and, and really fascinating. Yeah. Um, one point that I wanted to pick up on um, quite early is you mentioned about diversity, equity and inclusion. And at other points, we've seen it described as uh, diversity, equality and inclusion. And I know that equity and equality are quite different things, but I wondered if you could just really quickly highlight that difference in case anyone's not familiar with the term. Yeah, absolutely. So I prefer to use the word equity as many organisations have chosen to do within our sector. And the difference, the primary difference between equality and equity is equity understands the differences of somebody's background. So you, by treating everybody the same, you don't necessarily get the equality of opportunity. However, if you do it on a more equitable model, you understand the things that people need in order to succeed. So I'm sure everybody, if you Google equity, um, you will come across a, a picture, which is three people um, standing on some set of stools and they are of different heights and they can't see over... Um, they can't see over the um, the barrier in front of them because one is too short, one is a medium height who can just see over, and one is really tall and therefore can see um, quite out in the open. So equity is saying, okay, we acknowledge that people come from different places, people come from different backgrounds and therefore have different needs. And how are we going to address that? Whereas equality, in my opinion, is a blanket term um, and which is sometimes not really helpful when we look at this issue. Great thanks for um, for explaining that and then kind of on a on a similar note if it's okay you mentioned about how big grant givers um, have formed this DEI uh, committee do you know any of the particular steps that they're taking at all? Yeah absolutely so there are a group of um, funders across the UK as I've mentioned and some of them are some of the largest grant organisations in the country. Some are really small. And what they've tried to do is understand how they can distribute the funding more equitably and inclusively. So what does that mean? We know that COVID-19 has had a disproportionate effect on certain communities. So those from the Black, Asian, minorities, ethnic group, for example, are four times more likely to die from COVID-19. So then it's saying, how can we ensure as funders that we are 
distributing where the need is? How are we talking to organisations that have trust in these communities? Because in many ways, the organisations that we work for in the sector, they are the gateway to these communities. And it's ensuring how best can we utilise the organisations that we work for um, so funding can be provided to these organisations so the money can go to the grassroots where it's needed the most. And so these are a couple of steps in which the coalition, um, which was formed earlier this year, is looking to address. And, and it gives some perspective in terms of where the conversation is going. You know, a lot of smaller organisations have been given significant grants over the last six to nine months. And I think there's a reason for that particularly because they have trust, they have knowledge of these communities. And it's so important that we work collaboratively to use each other's skill sets in our sector to, to support and serve the beneficiaries. Great. Thanks for, for sharing those examples. I think it really puts the, the question about whether we as a sector ourselves are doing enough uh, into context because it's not enough for just the grant givers to give that, right? Especially, as you say, when we're becoming increasingly reliant on trust and foundations as a growingly important income stream, it's not enough to, to give them all the power of making the right choices. We have to stop competing with each other as much as we are, collaborate a bit more and actually take equity into our own hands too, right? Absolutely. And I think collaboration is the name of the game going forward long gone are the days where we duplicate each other's work we don't have enough funding available to do that and i don't think it makes sense or hasn't made sense for a long time um to do that so big and small organizations using their own expertise um understanding if they are serving the same purpose how can they work together to further their interest of our beneficiaries how can big organizations support smaller organizations who do not have the capacity for digital innovation, do not have the capacity for campaigns and policy and, and advocating on behalf of homeless people, for example. So it's just really about understanding how we can really collaborate with one another to advance the interests of our beneficiaries and to serve them more effectively and, and productively moving forward. I think that's a really good challenge to, to throw out, especially this early into the the conversation about how big organizations can support smaller organizations and it's it's funny that you mention um homelessness because tom you have a bit of experience with homeless charities supporting each other and, and how that's both worked and not worked is that right yeah that's true and i think it's probably a really good example of almost uh, a subsector within the, in in the charitable sector of organizations that work in in homelessness and one thing i've learned working in a, uh, as a trustee for a homelessness charity is you, you work quite closely with uh, with local authorities and, and local government and all they do is collaborate with each other. That's their kind of uh, MO almost. So for, for a small homeless organisation, we, we found that the services that we offered were so oversubscribed by larger organisations who were struggling to really offer that breadth of service. And it, it started a conversation. It was a weird way to come about that conversation, but it started that whole conversation of how do we collaborate? Because maybe what we know on a small scale is way 
is way more important and way more impactful than anything a larger organization can do. So it, it was almost a, a, an admission of we can't do it all from some of the larger organizations, which really was a result of the pandemic. It, it, there was no other way of putting it. It was a catalyst. Um, the thing that I've, I guess, I think I want to ask um, you, Usman, just in general, is what, what what happens if organizations don't do this? Like, what's the what's the opposite? Like, if 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 organizations don't go down the route of collaboration, if they don't improve their EDI practices, what do you think is is the, is the outcome? Yeah, I think at this point, it's I think it's important to say that only collaborate when it makes sense. So there's no yeah. point um, to collaborate for the sake of collaborating only where it makes sense and the two visions and missions of both organizations are aligned because if you're trying to achieve slightly different priorities um that might have a negative effect on the beneficiary so i think it's important to understand we can we should only collaborate when we absolutely need to the danger is if if organizations don't collaborate primarily uh, the biggest danger is that when you're working with the beneficiaries, you're duplicating each other's work. And once you duplicate each other's work, you're not providing a holistic support package to the beneficiaries. So what organizations need to ask themselves is, how can we offer a holistic approach to for our services to the beneficiaries that we serve? And I think that has to be at the forefront of people's minds. I think the second danger, if, if collaboration is not done effectively, is that you will definitely lose out on funding opportunities. There are many funding opportunities out there which absolutely require you to collaborate and which and some which um, encourage you to collaborate. And I think that's where the particular trust and foundation sector is going down um, because, you know, trust and foundations talk to one another. They know the similarities and differences of organisations and, and purposes and aims and missions. So I think it's really important that in order for you to stay relevant, in order for you to understand and take advantage of these funding opportunities that you will miss out on these opportunities if you don't collaborate. So that's what I see as being two of the most um, compelling dangers of not collaborating. And I think also in terms of your reputation um, as an organisation, that could potentially suffer if you're willing, if you're just, you know, putting a, uh, it's just saying, you know, I'm absolutely not going to collaborate for whatever reason. That can also be a danger reputationally for an organization. Because what happens from collaboration is that you listen and you learn from one another. And those skills and those learnings can be embedded back into the organization. Um, and once you learn those skills, you know, you can benefit on other programs and other services that you offer as an organization too. I think that's a really good point. Can, I guess following on from this, you have to forgive my ignorance it, for, for a lot of trust and foundation stuff. A lot of this is quite new for me, but can you see a world where trust and foundations basically start like stipulating this, that they require joint funding bids? They, they might, they might do this already, but do you think like collaboration, for example, might be a red line for foundations as a result of the pandemic? Do you think that's something that they're going to, really embed into their processes? Um, I think so. I think we're going to see it more often um, than we currently do. I think that's definitely the case. Some trust and foundations already do do that. So the Dream Fund, uh, the People's Postcode Dream Fund, 
normally runs as a dream fund, but this year, because of the pandemic, was run as a post-grid recovery fund. So the dream fund, which on an annual basis, um, Trust and Foundations team apply for, which is around one million to one point five million pounds worth of funding over the course of two to three years, depending on the year that you apply. They stipulate that you need to partner with an organization, so they understand the benefit of collaboration. Now, what I would see, what I would, what I would kind of envision seeing going forward is that Trust and Foundations, rather than making a red line and saying you must. I think they would encourage collaboration where is necessary and understanding that collaboration definitely has its benefits because as a sector, what is our ultimate mission? Our ultimate mission is to serve our beneficiaries, whether that be children, young people, whether that be homelessness, whether that be medical research. And also what I think, because of the strains of the pandemic affecting organisations across our sector financially, you're going to see a lot more organisations merge with one another and and therefore what you're going to have to do see is that organizations that could potentially apply to the same funding opportunity as two or three different organizations if they do merge or as their mission and vision becomes more aligned they are going to more naturally feel um that it's better to um apply together as a consortium as opposed to um just going off and doing their own thing I really love that that point that you made earlier about how if you're duplicating services, actually you're getting further away from your mission rather than closer to it because you're sending conflicting messages to your beneficiaries and you're not considering the whole package that you could be working together to offer. And I think as, as the coronavirus crisis kind of exaggerates the fault lines in societies, the opportunity to kind of look at the services that you offer and the other services that are out there, it's a, it's a natural point to consider partnership, collaboration, potential merging, right? Absolutely. And I also think where collaboration, organisations feel collaboration is not necessary, I think what organisations generally will do is they will be more streamlined in terms of where they think they can offer value to their beneficiaries. So rather than running 100 projects, they may streamline their services and you know, offer a, a reasonable number of services. And therefore, each organization will have their USP. Each organization, in many ways, will have their specialism. So while it's important to collaborate, I think it's important to tease out what your USP is as an organization as well and to see what you can offer beneficiaries that other organisations may not have the expertise. Um, and that's also, I think, important, because what that means is that you're serving the beneficiaries from your skill set, from your expertise and from your knowledge, um, as opposed to just seeing this as a large group of people. And that's the worst thing we know that we can do in a sector, just label people with, with certain characteristics. Um, so it's important that, yes, we collaborate but equally, we tease out what is our unique selling point. What do we offer the sector um, that other organisations may not have the skill set or expertise to do at the moment? And when necessary, how can we collaborate so we learn from one another um, so we can try to make the sector better, um, learn from each other and also benefit our beneficiaries? And one thing I would say in from our sector for the last nine months is clear. 
that's what's so great about our sector the fact that we are willing to collaborate learn from one another and that's one of the reasons why I joined the sector in the first place and you've seen remarkable achievements in the last nine months from our sector let's not kind of get away from that we've seen emergency appeals being drawn up within two or three days and being published which have resulted in millions of pounds coming to our organization I think yes COVID-19 has been difficult for a whole host of reasons but equally I think it's really shown the sector that we can innovate that we can really genuinely um you know, one of the criticisms of our sector, and we'll come onto this perhaps a little bit later on, is that we tend to be risk averse. But what the sector has, what, what we've shown in the last nine months is, in fact, we can make really good progress um, within a short space of time. And that's something that I hopefully will will kind of come out, come to light in the future as well. Particularly when you look at silos, you know, how, how often have you spoken to fundraisers or people in organisations across our sector where you know, they feel that their organization is siloed. But in the last six to nine months, we've seen incredible partnership working between digital teams, between fundraising, between services team, being adaptable to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think there's a huge amount of success that we can advocate as a sector. Um, and if I may, um, Tom and Andy, just mention on the EDI part, cool. one of the things that I, I think I'm I'm quite passionate about, and I think that organizations or some are already leading um, down this path, is is to be actively anti-racist. Um, and I think that's so important. I read an article um, a couple of months ago, and it really summed up the importance of what it meant to be anti-racist. So the reason why I'm, I'm saying this in terms of Trust and Foundations fundraising is because Trust and Foundations are asking us questions as fundraisers now. Are your... ELT members, are your trustees, are your senior leadership, are they truly representative? Do they have lived experience of some of the issues that you are willing to, you know, you're, you want to um, address? And therefore, we have to be actively anti-racist and try to get the narrative right. So what does, anti, what does an anti-racist organisation mean? It means, in my view, two things um, at a very basic level. I think, firstly, it means about educating and informing the role of institutional racism, power and privilege in the workplace and how that manifests in our sector. And the second is about increasing the racial and wider diversity of leadership and workforce. So I think that's really important. And it's also about addressing what are, what partners are organisations working with, including funders, including you know other partners that we work in, and, and are they truly um, wanting to be um, anti-racist organisations too. So what does it mean to be anti-racist? So I'll just read this out, which I think really um, epitomises what it means to be anti-racist. So it says, anti-racists are constantly looking around to say, what tools do I have at my disposal to make it clear that this is not acceptable? And that's exactly what anti-racists do. They make sure they never miss an opportunity to let the world know where they stand, even if they can't change everything. You become a beacon of light that way. You make some some others also want to be anti-racist too. So I think that gives a clear description of what we mean by when we talk about anti-racist organisations. And I know there's been a lot of um, chatter in the sector about leading down that path, but I think it's really important. 
so we come across to funders as a cred- as credible um, and knowledgeable in our field, but also that we are understanding of a diverse range of views. Um, and that's really important when we do trust and foundations applications because they essentially want to know, do organisations have the credibility to talk on such matters? Are they listening to their beneficiaries? And are they having different points of view around the table? So I think that's quite important too. I love the way that you've framed that, Usman, because um, the the segue from the fact that grant givers are starting to ask that question into the fact that being anti-racist means using all the tools that you have at your disposal, even if it's only one trust and foundation that's asking that question, that's enough of a tool to take to your ELT. And it's a really powerful moment to say, if grant givers are starting to think about this, it's long time that we start to think about this as proactively as possible. So I think that's a really powerful call to arms that knowing that it's increasingly important to get support can hopefully finally break through that barrier of why it's important in the first place, because a lot of people know that it's already important, but a lot of other people are paying lip service to it because they think that they can make it quiet and go away. Whereas this is a tool that you can keep using over and over again until action is actually taken. Absolutely, Andy. Completely agree with you. And something I would add on to that is it's so important as organisations that we recognise this and we really take advantage um, of the opportunities um, that the sector presents us with. We're very fortunate to work in a sector um, that has values like inclusivity, compassion, um, you know, innovation, in, you know, humanity. These are all values that all of our organisations subscribe to. But what we really have to ask ourselves is, are we actively and genuinely living out these values? And in some cases, we definitely are, as as I've already mentioned. But in some cases, we're not because we can't say we are genuinely inclusive when we do not include people from a diverse range of backgrounds into our boardrooms to discuss issues um, relating to beneficiaries. You know, and, and I think it's really important at this stage to say that EDI is not just about ethnic and racial diversity. It's also about sexual orientation. It's also about disability and a whole host of other areas too. But how many of our trustees and senior leadership, for example, would identify as being disabled at organisations that predominantly support those that are disabled? You know, so we need, we can't allow for groupthink to consume our organisations. And it's really important when you're looking at trust and foundations fundraising, because the reason why I love trust and foundations is because it allows you to make transformational change in society. You can hit six and seven K, sorry, six and seven figure gifts on a regular basis, and that can lead to transformational change. But the only way you're going to lead to transformational change is if through your due diligence, through your program development, through working with your service users and your beneficiaries, that stage is so important. And if that stage is not properly done, then and you're not listening to your beneficiaries in the right way, or you're not having different voices around the table to cultivate, um, you know, the the most effective programs, then that's going to have an impact down the line when when you start delivering the program. 
I think that's that's so important and the the makeup of of what your boards look like and what your staff look like is a is a topic that's come up time and time again, especially in recent episodes. We um we had a great episode with Emma Smith talking about how ableism stops disabled people from entering or progressing within the sector. And we had another great episode with Alice Rath about uh the age of of your average trustee. Mm. And I think the the piece that you just said about um how we get to transformational change is a is a real theme of of this set of episodes that we're putting together at the moment that transformational change comes from how you do your thinking and your thinking is based off of who's in the room right so if you want transformational change change who's in the room yeah absolutely you hit the nail on the head and i think one point which you both have touched on a bit earlier was around tokenism. So why we want, you know, people around the table from a diverse range of backgrounds. What we also want to avoid at the same time is tokenism. And what I genuinely believe the answer to that is, is how can in our organisations, can we cultivate an environment where we are able to challenge each other so what does that actually mean? So what what I what I've spoken about quite quite a lot in our sector with with colleagues and others is we need to cultivate a culture in our organisations where differences are seen as a strength and not a threat to the status quo. I think that's important. Also, that every individual is felt empowered to bring themselves to the workplace because I believe that is a birthplace of innovation. Um, I read quite a lot about leadership and innovation, particularly um, Brené Brown, who you two may have come across, and she talks about this a lot. If your colleagues feel comfortable in raising concerns, if your colleagues feel comfortable in constructively challenging views, you're more likely that that kind of uh, conversation is more likely to lead to transformational change because, firstly, you're being open and honest with one another. And secondly, you're saying, what can we develop in our organisations that can have the most impact for our beneficiaries? And those that bring their whole selves to work, that are not fearful of any sort of um, retaliation to their suggestions, their thoughts and ideas, that is where you get true innovation. And as a sector, if we are to solve some of the biggest issues of our time, climate change, homelessness, you know, poverty, health inequalities, particularly after the pandemic, we are going to need new ideas to come to the table. The ideas of the past are no longer going to do. And I think that is where you need organisations. And some organisations have done terrifically well in cultivating this change, it should be said as well. And the sector has made advancements in the last two years. But I still believe that there is so much more to do so what I would say is, you know, encourage constructive criticism. Ask your colleagues, where am I going wrong? What are I, what aren't I seeing? You know, and, and senior leadership also need to put out the signal that you can also challenge us too. You're part of our team. We are one organisation. We are here to serve our beneficiaries. And there shouldn't necessarily be... Um, a difference within that you know you sh- at all levels of the organization you should be able to challenge each other in order to come up with the most effective solution for your beneficiaries in my view 
Okay, Isman, the time has come to talk about your peeve and your passion in the sector. 60 seconds to talk about your biggest peeve. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I think one of my peeves about the sector would be that at times we can be risk averse. And I think that limits what we can achieve as a sector and as organisations. And so what I would hope is going forward that we are willing to take more risks because when we start to push the boundaries in our sector and as organisations, when we are given that opportunity to say it's okay to quote unquote fail, but we know that these this is the nature of the game. And if we are to solve some of the biggest problems and issues of our time, then what we really need to do is push the boundaries and see how can we develop programs and services that are effective for our beneficiaries. And sometimes you won't always get the right answer. But in the long term, you'll be able to come up with solutions that are far more wide-reaching than anything that you would have ever envisaged if we just play it safe. So my pet peeve would be Let's not be risk of us. Let's go for it. Let's challenge ourselves. And next up, Usman, on the clock, 60 seconds on your favourite thing about the sector. Go. The favourite thing about the sector for me is one of the reasons why I decided to join the sector in the first place. And quite simply, it's the people. It's such a privilege to work with like-minded individuals who have just as much passion as creative, talented, and really want to see good done in the world. And to do that on a daily basis, I know that we all go through challenges in our in our day-to-day work, but really once you step back and you see the sector that we work in, it truly makes you um, humbled and quite privileged to be part of organisations and a sector who can genuinely change people's lives. So for me, you know, right at the top of the list, the best thing about the sector for me is definitely the people. You're listening to Fixing Fundraising. Don't forget you can listen to all our episodes at fixingfundraising.uk. And now, back to the episode. Those when we've come to that wonderful time called question time where we ask questions dun, 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 dun. question time copyright free I'm certain of it. <laughs> nice that's a really good jingle i like that you added copyright free in it just in case oh yeah i thought um, that, that would sell sell it really the... hedging our bets mm-hmm. <laughs> on that one uh moving swiftly on uh question one Osman, is is there a resource that you would recommend that people can read to learn more about um, everything you talked about, but I guess specifically about how trusts and foundations are changing. Is there a, a blog post? Is there a website? Is there something that you would recommend that people can get started? I think on the trust and foundation side, um, I didn't, so I didn't prepare anything for that, but I have something else, just wider context. Is that okay? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So the one resource that I would recommend that, some of your listeners may not um, have come across is the Privilege Cath. So 
this is a webinar that takes place on a weekly basis and they discuss a range of different issues. So last week they discussed FGM. They also discussed power and privilege in the workplace. They've also discussed um, whether the learnings that we can take from the brutal murder of Stephen Lawrence in 1993 are still relevant today. So the reason why I think this is a really useful resource is because it just allows us to understand society that we live in today. And the only way in which we can overcome some of these barriers, um, some of these challenges, is if we are willing to understand each other. So I feel that's proved really helpful. I've joined um, five or six privileged CAFs. Um, you can Google them um, and sign up. It's quite straightforward. And that's over the lockdown period and into the second lockdown. It's something that I continually listen to because there's so much there to learn. Um, and the only way which we're going to advance as a society is if we learn from each other and we listen to one another um, and we get to know one another. Brilliant. Nice. That sounds, that sounds great. We'll put a link to that in the episode description because it sounds ace. Thanks. We sure will. Thanks as well. Our, our second question for you is um, if there's any any charities or funders that you want to give a particular shout out to for, for doing particularly well in the DEI space. Absolutely. I think one of the organisations that everybody is talking about is Charity So White. I think they've done a phenomenal job in holding up a mirror to our sector um, over the last 18 months or so. And in, in, in some instances, it hasn't been positive reading. But what I'm really encouraged by is organisations are now starting to listen and pay close attention to make genuine change in our sector. And one thing that I've liked about Charity So White is that they are also providing solutions. And that's something that we all should come together um, to do. So that's one organisation that I'd like to give a shout out to, just because the way that they've advanced the agenda for genuine equality um, and diversity and inclusion. And now it's the responsibility of each and every individual of our sector to make our sector more inclusive and more diverse. Um, because if we do, then we can impact the lives of our beneficiaries in so many other ways. Um, so that's one organisation that I would definitely want to give a shout out to. In terms of on the trust and foundation side, I'm sure Andy Watts won't mind me saying, but Andy Watts was previously at Sue Ryder and now um, is at Carers First. And he's done a phenomenal job in really engaging with trust and foundations. Um, he was instrumental in driving up trust and foundations income for Sue Ryder. Um, I I know Andy personally. We sat on a um, trust networking group. His his intelligence, his insight within trust and foundations, um, is is you know is excellent, and somebody that I've continued to learn from as well. So, in terms of a fundraiser that I've got to know well in the trust and foundation space and and learned a lot from is certainly Andy. You know the way he's you know done a lot of stewardship in a different way to engage funders. Um, he's gone the extra mile, and that certainly resulted in bringing in transformational gifts, and that's something that um, we all want to do in our sector. And possibly my favourite question, Esmond, if you were followed around with a sign above your head, 
what would it say and why? And bear in mind, it can be double-sided. There's been a lot of double-sided signs these days. <laughs> I think the sign that I would have is be the best version of yourself. Um, I mean that because as fundraisers, we're always under increasing pressure to raise more and more and more funds, particularly during the COVID-19 period and beyond. And I think just acknowledging and believing in yourself that you can actually not only do the job, but really um, have a have a great impact in your organisation and across the sector. So believe in yourself and be the best version of yourself and always continuously learn from each other and take part in activities that you wouldn't normally take part in. Um, you know, like do podcasts or do webinars or volunteer yourself to get involved in different activities. Um, that's probably a long-winded answer, but the answer to the question probably would be, be the best version of yourself. Nice. I love that sign. Get behind that sign. And now, possibly the most important question of the whole podcast. <laughs> What's your favourite joke? So before I say it, I must say that this is very cringeworthy and apologies in advance, but Andy and Tom did like it, so I will say it. Um, so the, the question is, how many philanthropists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. How many? I'm sorry, we don't find overheads. <laughs> yeah, I can find overheads. Yeah, apologies, apologies. <laughs> I love it. I love <laughs> it. Level it is, it's gone beyond the roof. It's going to tickle some people, that is, for sure, for sure, for sure. Esmond, thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, if people have enjoyed this and they want to engage with you further, where's the best place to find you? So they can um, find me on LinkedIn. Um, so my name is Mohammed Osman Mughal on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me and we can also have a conversation as well. So that's the best place to find me. I'm also on Twitter, uh, Osman, spelled U-S-M-A-N, 1786. So you can also find me there. Ace, thank you so much for coming on and I hope to speak to you soon. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Andy and Tom. Really appreciate it and thanks for having me today. Cheers, Osman. Bye.